0: I think we're ready to get started this afternoon. My name is Emily Rollins, and I'm the coordinator of the Research Unplugged Conversation Series, and I'm glad to see some people back after last week. We're hoping to continue the conversation about sustainability and what you can do. Uh, for those of you who haven't yet been to a conversation, I'll just tell you a little bit about how we got started. Uh, we're based on what's called Cafe Scientifique, um, a something that happened over in the UK a couple years ago and has now spread throughout their country and Europe as well as ours. And we're currently in our sixth season of Research Unplugged and we meet every Wednesday afternoon from noon until one right here in the theater. And the concept of the event is to bring community members to a comfortable and casual place such as this gallery to discuss research with the experts. Uh, We have one more event this season and then we'll pick up again in the fall, so keep your eyes and ears open for upcoming events. Uh, And for those of you who were here last week, you'll remember that we tried to get your questions on the microphone, which we're going to try and do again this week. I'll be running the mic, so raise your hand, give me a signal when you're ready to ask a question, and I'll try to get the mic to you. It doesn't project your voice, just gets quality audio for our recap. At this point, I'll turn it over to Katie Feeney, our intern, and she will introduce today's host. Like Emily said, my name is Katie Feeney. I'm the uh, intern for
1: Research Unplugged this semester, and I'm here to introduce Steve Votero. Uh He's the Director of Operations and the current resident of the Penn State Center for Sustainability. Um, his mornings are a little bit different than ours. He gets up, puts on his clothes to walk to the bathroom, walks 30 yards to turn on the coffee, which he's ground the, the beans for,
2: um, makes his own world-famous salsa, which, from ingredients that he grows, uh, which I'm told gets better all the time. So maybe when we go up to the center, we can uh, all
1: have a taste. I brought some chips. Um, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, He's here today to teach us some ways in which we can decrease our impact on the environment um, and things we can do in everyday life starting today that can help. So without further ado, Dave LaTerra. Well, thank you. Thanks, everybody, for coming. I recognize a lot of faces from last week. Hopefully we can talk about what we can do as individuals to sort of spawn this sustainability revolution that's going on, uh, make it more widespread so we all have kind of a part in it. Um, Today I'm going to talk about um, sort of the culmination of four years of experience that I've had uh, working at the Center for Sustainability and and living there for the last two years. Um, I've devised a uh, homestead scenario out at the Center for Sustainability where I'm housing myself completely off the grid uh, while working as a full-time student um, on a master's in adult education at Penn State. So it's been a very, very interesting experience um, building it from the ground up and learning how to kind of live the lifestyle that I'm really used to and something really conducive to my ideals and at the same time, um, you know, play the role of a professional and go to classes every day and try to be presentable. So um, (laughs) this is actually about the cleanest, nicest clothes I have, so you have to... (laughs) forgive me, this is my work attire and uh, presentation attire. So today we're going to talk about ecological footprinting, which is sort of the, the crux of this work that I'm doing, and uh, the tool that I've used to kind of uh, guide myself to decreasing my my environmental impact. The um, topic is Walking Lightly on Earth, Adventures in Sustainable Living, and uh, we'll get back more into this, but generally ecological footprinting here, for, taken from Wackernagel, who's really kind of the term ecological footprinting analysis this is an accounting tool that enables us to estimate the resource consumption and waste assimilation requirements of a defined human population or an economy in terms of corresponding productive land. Boil down simply it's um, a way of equating our environmental impact into an acreage amount, the amount of acreage it would take to sustain our lifestyle. And we'll come back to that. Uh, this is the sort of graph that I've been using for since September. Um, Keeping track of every little aspect of my life from, from these categories of food, electricity, transportation, goods and services, and wastes and recyclables. And I've been able to decrease my footprint from the American average down to five and a half acres um, using all of these tools that I've sort of come across and learned about and unearthed through ecological footprinting and working with professionals at Penn State. Um, but first, my, my segue montage into, uh, <laughs> this is sort of the day in the life, uh, it just this is all from the last two weeks or so of, of being around the center and some of the things that are out there. and uh, Some friends of mine just give you a, some kind of scope of what's happening, the kind of influx of people that are interested in this more and more, uh, wanting to come out and participate and get their hands dirty, learn about how they might install their own renewable energy um, there, it's, a, it's a refreshing place, there's lots of interesting things going on there and mainly just people working out of their you know, good intentions and not really being paid to do anything um, so this is the Center for Sustainability and I guess we should start with a definition of sustainability um, I should also say that I'm going to try to talk for about a half hour and then open the rest of this up for a half hour of conversation too generally sustainability uh, is, is um, it's Came out of the uh, the World Commission for Development uh, Environment and Development, the UN Commission in 1987, um, of a report called Our Common Future, which is also known as the Brundtland Report, where they termed sustainability development as um, a way of accounting for the. um, uh, Sorry, I'm a little nervous here. um, making sure that we don't use the, the resources beyond our own consumption and taking into account future generations. Um, now, that term is, is always ever-evolving, and um, with tools like the ecological footprint, they've been able to really evolve that term. Um, I, I wrote a definition for the um, Encyclopedia of Youth Activism defining sustainability as humanity's ability to adapt to change, and I think that's kind of a, the easiest way to sum it up. It's not very definitive, but it's not a very definitive term because it's more of a sort of something that we're living through right now, a paradigm shift, if you will, of, of culture right now that we're trying to get a sense of what this means. Uh, this is the Center for Sustainability though, and that's my, my house in the background there. And the center is a variety of things, a laboratory, a hands-on environment, a showcase, as well as my home, which is uh, the only sort of program of its kind in the country housing a student on a major university campus without any kinds of uh, ties to the uh, utilities there. Uh, this is our landscape. We have about eight and a half acres of land and projects dotted all across the landscape. So I, I am walking very far distances from one facility to the other, not by not by choice, but more out of design and, and sort of uh, the organic uh, kind of uh, progression of the place. I've just sort of retrofitted buildings out there to house myself, not really. Uh, you know, I didn't get a chance to design the overall homestead. I just sort of retrofitted what was there to suit my needs. Um, we have all kinds of projects going on. Some of the most attractive right now are the energy projects. Um, solar's really hot right now. Wind's very hot. People have lots of questions on how they can do that. Uh, we've devised all these these three systems here, including my house and uh, my uh, all the facilities I need, and a couple other varying systems on the um, in the mini farm that supply energy to the different facilities. And those, these were all designed by uh, seniors and engineers at Penn State, uh, that pump house there, which uh, pushes water out to our kitchen and circulates uh, the, the gray water that comes back from the kitchen into this series of pond chambers there. Um, these students kind of took an idea and just kind of ran with it. And that's the nice thing about the center. They just get their own creative uh, license to do whatever they really want and make mistakes and learn in the process. Um, We we get all kinds of people involved, from um, community volunteers that just come out year after year, to engineers, to groups like Women in Engineering, um, and a variety of camps that come through Penn State in the summertime. This is the largest system that we've built at the moment, uh, the Penn State Power Lion, which is um, one and a half kilowatts of solar tied in with uh, a wind generator that produces another three kilowatts, and this is sort of the progression of that. And, um, you know, it was sort of a hodgepodge of things that we had donated and slapped together, and uh, a lot of creative design went into that, too, and, and hard work. We had the, um, this system was welded by a class of uh, seniors, high school students down at Central Pennsylvania Institute of Technology that were psyched to get involved in a solar project. They welded the entire frame of our system for us, and, and these, these fellows here uh, put it together and got it up and running just in time for me to move out to the site and start my my life out there. Here's the wind generator that also ties into that system that we've done as a um, as a project, um, working with community um, folks and students at Penn State as well. Uh, we put that up on Earth Day last year, and we use that power to do a number of things to power my house. Uh, there's a small stage out there. We've we've had performances. We've had speakers come out and, and visit with us and and talk. It primarily functions to power my my pumps and, and heaters in my home and Provide a little supplemental uh, uh, temperature controls inside uh, my extended season greenhouse, and this is my home, the renewable energy homestead, my my happy little yurt, and my my bathroom facility here. And this is the inside, and a lot of people are always like, "How can you live in something so small?" And uh, it's really actually not as small as it as it looks. It's uh, this is sort of a uh, kind of a conglomerate of a few photographs that I put together, but. It's, it's pretty spacious inside. It has 144 square feet or 13.5-foot diameter floor, but it flares out off the walls, and you get a bit of extra space inside. It's very low-ground-hugging design uh, with some nice innovative features like some low-wattage lighting that I have wrapped around the inside and outside that are on timers. Uh, it's, it's difficult to light a space like that, so the string lights work really well, and it's an added bonus that they're low-wattage. And There's a radiant floor heating system um, embedded uh, underneath the structure, sort of spiraled out around like a like, a, um, like the top of a stove plate. And uh, there's a living roof on the top, which I use to do some uh, heating. It helps to heat and cool the structure, um, as well as do some water filtration. And that shot over there is of the foam guys who installed the polyisocyanurate spray foam, which sort of fills the wall cavities and roof cavities of the yurt completely. Uh, there's, there's a gap in the roof and the walls, and They've filled that completely and sealed it like a like a can and uh, does a great job of keeping it warm in there in the wintertime, along with the uh, radiant heat. Uh, this structure I retrofitted from a greenhouse, a passive solar-designed greenhouse. It's oriented south and has all this nice glazing and a straw-bell north wall. And we retrofitted it into a kitchen. So went from a greenhouse to a kitchen and in, a, in a couple months. Uh, I decided for my second year I didn't want to be cooking inside my house uh, so we were able to do that and make use of some other facilities out there and in turn get some more donations uh, to hook it up and actually have it function as a, a decent kitchen. It's got some nice innovative components in it, like an extremely low-wattage refrigerator, about a 150-watt refrigerator. Generally, your fridge is about 1,500 watts or so. This fridge is about seven times more efficient uh, and not too much more, exp- not too much more money. Uh, this is the bio-intensive uh, gardening that I that I pretty much do at the site to grow the majority of my food in in a very small amount of space. Whereas my facilities are spread out, my food is all pretty much contained in a a, a pretty small area of the landscape. And I grow all year long also. Um, I guess I'm explaining here some of the things that I've done to really help lower my footprint. We'll get into more of the the, uh, science of that in a minute. But I, I grow all four seasons, so rather than just stopping when the weather gets cold, I raise my plants to maturity in July and then put them in a greenhouse and simply cover them with dual layers of plastic and that's about all you need for extra insulation in this climate to grow greens uh, year-round. Um, so this was last year. Um, this is a, That's about what it looks like right now. We um, just replanted those vegetables about three weeks ago um, and finished up that prior harvest just a week beforehand. So it's nice. Um, it's always, there's always rolling food out there all year-round. These are some shots from the past, and inside it was nice and green when there was snow piling up around. And uh, some other systems on the property. Uh, this is the Living Machine Facility. It was a class gift of 2000, also supported by the class of 1950. Uh, it's a natural wastewater treatment facility where I take my composted waste and distribute it right into the system, so it closes that loop nicely. Um, I don't have to you know, There's issues with dispersing um, human, human manure, they, some people call it, onto the landscape in PA, so this is a nice way to actually make use of that waste by putting it into a system where my waste is feeding that system and keeping it healthy and in turn uh, remediating and processing that water back to clean, usable water. And of course, none of this is doable without a massive amount of help. Um, I, I'll talk about some of the things I've learned here, but overall it's just nerve-wracking trying to keep all of these things in line. I, I'm not really the kind of person that you would expect to do all this, honestly. I learned a lot of this along the way and by uh, by making use of the professionals at Penn State and also um, making use of the Internet um, at all hours of the day. But this is just a small sample of the people that have come out there on a regular basis within the last year. Um, but over the last four years, um, you know, my, my project, I, I owe a great thanks to the people, some of which are here today who helped put all this and set all this in motion and make sure it was successful. And in turn, with their help, we're able to help them too and do fun things like taking the solar array here up onto the hub lawn and uh, setting it up as what we were calling the out-dormitory that day. And um, we had pretty much all the little devices and things that students would use in their dormitory set up on the lawn that day. And uh, just to show the kind of power that you can produce. And you, you don't need this massive amount of electricity or a massive amount of money to produce a, a photovoltaic system that's going to be useful to you. And these are a couple other events that people have, uh, at Penn State have helped us coordinate and, and join in. So next at the CFS, we're building sort of the next generation of the homestead that's out there right now. Uh, this is the Solar Decathlon Project, which is uh, featured every two years, um... Different universities around the country build these hybrid, um, so all all all-in-one units where for self-sufficiency, very expensive homes, very innovative designs. They bring them down to the mall in Washington D.C., line them up out front there, and they're they're voted on um, for on a number of features. Students have to live in it for three days and have to perform a number of activities. Uh, This is the winning design last year, and this will be Penn State will be involved in the two thousand and seven competition. This will be the team to beat Colorado State. They've won the last two years and last two competitions in a row. But we've got a lot of amazing things going on at Penn State, so I'm pretty confident that we'll be able to unseat them. <laughs> uh, we're also trying to work and um, devise a tour to integrate some of the other areas that are centered right around the Center for Sustainability. There's actually pathways that connect all of these things together. Uh, the Furnace, the, uh, the Museum and Historical Center down the street from us, Millbrook Marsh stone soup in the center are all in a very small loop and it would be a great way to take students around k through 12 or higher education and give them a sense of a wide variety of issues of what's going on environmentally and what you can do environmentally we're also developing a couple other systems right now a solar toolkit and this um first uh grid tied system this will be the first actual renewable energy system on the penn state campus that is tied back into the grid and penn state is collecting the energy credits for that so We've now gone from being a university generating and using wind power to a university generating, using wind and solar and solar right here on campus. This is very exciting. Um, and s- as far as uh, we're going to segue back into the ecological footprinting now, but uh, as far as my project, um, I'm trying to get the next individual trained up so he can kind of come in and take over next year and pick up where I've left off and hopefully beat my footprint numbers. That's the goal here. Is uh, I've sort of set out a framework of month by month, what I was able to achieve with my ecological footprint, and the next student that comes in will be able to try to to beat those numbers and find creative ways of reducing their their impacts. Uh, So the the ecological footprint, as we talked about before, is a way of um, equating our environmental impact to acreage, and that's based on this idea of taking all of the total land, dividing it by the total population on the planet, and that gives us roughly about four and a half acres per person. That's not really taking into account any other kinds of living creatures on the planet, um, but it's sort of a, an estimate and kind of a, a pathway for us right now to be working on. So I've been trying to shoot for that four and a half acres, um, and it's been, it's been a very tough goal. Um, these are some of the, re- the main resources for ecological footprinting right now. The Global Footprint Network is, uh, is headed up by Mathis Wackernagel, who's um, responsible for coining the term ecological footprinting. His partner, um, William Reese, is actually the the creator of it and created the the idea of ecological footprinting back in the 70s. He was teaching his his accounting classes, actually, of ways of assessing environmental impact, but it didn't really wind up being refined until he started working with Wackernagel in the uh, early 90s. That information that they've developed has been used now by a variety of agencies. Uh, The UN has used it in their um, population report um, a couple years back. This is some information from the um, Living Planet Report produced by the World Wildlife Foundation, which is using um, the Global Footprinting Network's calculations. They've, they've calculated the, the national footprint of 151 nations with populations um, of, above a million, and they're sort of strung out across here. And You can see the United States is sort of top of that list. Um, we, we have, by far, along with the rest of the main powers in this country, and this is no, no surprise... We have the largest footprint because we're absorbing most of the resources. Um, and then down here on this lower end, there's you can see a whole slew of countries that have more than a million people that are far below this four-and-a-half. Uh, this this line here designates that four-and-a-half-acre point. So there's a variety of countries beyond with more than a million people that are well below that uh, four-and-a-half. And that's certainly something that has a lot to do with the fact that we're absorbing probably a lot of resources that would should be dispersed more uh, widely across the world and more evenly. Here's some of the averages across the uh, the, the globe right now. America at somewhere around 24.5 uh, to 25 acres. Canada, Europe, Japan. And then China and India, which constitute more than a third of the world's population, are dwindling down at four and two acres. Uh, some other things that are going on with ecological footprinting right now. Michael Fay uh, just put out... Uh, just in a recent uh, National Geographic article, is using that idea of footprinting to photograph the entire area of Africa. In 92,000 photos, he's actually literally trying to photograph and get a visual representation of the footprint of Africa and showing the healthy regions and the unhealthy regions to really demonstrate that visually. It's, uh, I think it's a very impacting uh, project. Uh, of course, Amory Levins at the Rocky Mountain Institute is uh, well known for his... Innovative ideas. He's not necessarily calculating these with ecological footprinting, but he's been able to generate his own power and his own heat um, up high in the the high altitudes of the Rocky Mountains, and he's even growing his own bananas in the Rocky Mountains. So he's he's got it going on. Uh, This is the ecological footprinting record book, which I've created um, this year, which is um, available to anybody. It's on it's on a wiki page on the internet. It's a page that anybody can edit. Uh, What I've done is taken all my monthly calculations, put them up on the Internet to try to challenge people to, you know, take a week out of their lives to maybe just tally up their, you know, their use of resources in a week and, you know, get an average over the month, post it up on the record books and it'll be there permanently. And hopefully we can build this list and and get an idea and sense of what kinds of uh, what kind of footprints people have and how far people are willing to go. And again, this is, uh, this is the Penn State student footprint uh, calculator that I've sort of devised based on uh, Jim Merkel's um, calculations in, in a book that he wrote recently, Radical Simplicity, about ecological footprinting. I developed this for Penn State students so that, you know, as a way of tr- sort of spurring them on to take some kind of uh, active role in, in calculating their footprint and hopefully add that information to those footprinting records. Now on to my, my information, I guess the, the heart of it. You know, all, all these years I've been working to devise this plan so that I could decrease my footprint. Um, and this is how it started. You, you'll see the sort of progression here. Um, I'm working on 21 credits in, in, <laughs> this semester, um, so I'm pretty much squeezing the most of my master's into one year. So it's been pretty hectic between trying to manage that and manage all of my resources. So you'll see as it went on in October increased a little bit. By November, it made a big jump. Um, that had a lot to do with you know, leaky solar hot water heaters and you know, having to go to backup systems like propane, which comes at a very high cost on your ecological footprint due to the um, embedded energy in producing and refining propane. By December, it jumped up a bit more to 12.9, also due to use of propane. Um, so my overall average for, those, for the fall semester was about 8.84 acres. Um, which i 'm happy with it's, it's, it was a good start um, in, in trying to take this seriously, um, but January it jumped up even higher, and um, I think I, you know I got a little cabin fever a little bit early this winter and went on a couple of road trips um, <laughs> and that you know as i mean I, I, I should say that I, I really wanted to try to restrict myself, but i didn 't want to make myself unhappy you know i I don't think that's what this is about it's not about trying to you know starve myself out there or sleep in you know a 20 negative 20 degree bag and not use heat it's about living comfortably and really you know engaging myself in this activity and and seeing what's reasonable um so in february i jumped again and march last month was probably my worst month even though we're starting to get out of this this cold weather now um it was way up there, and, and I took a, a wide variety of trips <laughs> and drove around, so that, that, that'll do it. You, know, you get in a car and you drive around a couple times, and that fossil fuel is enough to really, really spike um, footprint calculations. I am back down to 6.8 in April now, so that's exciting. I'm hoping that now with the warm weather and the majority of my trips out of the way, I can really focus on having at least one month. I'm, I'm here till August, and then I'm, I'm moving away. Uh, I'd like to try to get one of those months in there down at four and a half acres. It's easier to do now with more abundant food. Um, Warm weather, I just bike everywhere. I don't really have too many intentions of driving. I have a thesis to hand in in a few weeks, so I'll be here working on that, hopefully, and not getting in my car and driving away. Um, This is a little hard to see, but this is sort of a, a conversion list that I've made. So when I'm running around in the day, I've gotten kind of tedious and almost... A little bit, you know, a little, they've gone a little too far with some of these things of calculating, you know, the weight of a soda can so I know how much tin I'm using or the weight of a banana. It makes it easier than having to run to like a scale every time I I eat something. I kind of have these numbers kind of in my head now seven ounces for an orange, seven ounces for a banana, four ounces for a cup of pasta. um, This is a, um, a competition. I was challenged in the fall semester by Saras, a student here at Penn State, a senior to an ecological footprinting challenge. And it gave me a good chance to get a sense of what is the ecological footprint of a student at Penn State. So we set about um, doing this for a week. We kept calculations for a week and then multiplied that to get a monthly average. And uh, on the eating out expenditures, I, I spent about $10 over that course of that month average. And uh, Saras has a fancy for Hot Pockets, so <laughs> that spiked hers right there. Uh, transportation, I, uh, it was still nice enough to bike around. Once those cold months came, I was, I, 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 wound up in my car a bit more. Uh, but she did wind up using uh, a lot of transportation, public transportation, which she uses generally, but still uh, that comes at a cost when you're using those fossil fuels. Um, my kilowatt hour consumption a month is about, that was 66 getting on to the winter months when I was using an electric space heater at night. Generally, I use about 40 kilowatt hours a month. An average homeowner might use about 500 um, anywhere to 1,500, depending on what kind of conservation practices you're interested in in trying. Uh, recyclables, I threw away about 5 pounds of garbage that month, uh, which is the equivalent to about f- what people throw away in one week. Uh, Saras had about 10, 12 pounds of garbage. Um, garbage also has a uh, plays a toll in your footprint. Um, monthly goods, I'm fortunate enough that I, I don't have much... Pay for right now, uh, living off the grid is is nice in those in those in that sense. You don't have to pay electrical costs or water. And the housing footprint, um, yeah, I've got a pretty small home, so that that was an easy one. In the end, my average for that wound up being about 6.9, and Sarasa's was about 21, which isn't far off from the, the that American average. And I, I think you know, a students should have a bit of an easier time. Um, decreasing that American average, hopefully somewhere in the teens. Some other students I've done this with have had about 15, 16. I appreciate Saras for her honesty. She really, she tried, but at the same time, you know, she just wanted to live her life. And I think it gave her a good sense of, uh, you know, what, she, what kinds of things she's using. And I think she, she also saw this, saw this ecological footprinting tool as that sort of Pandora's box. It's this sort of roadmap of, uh, that just lays it out for you. Here's, you know, here's your consumption broken down into categories. And once you have that in front of you and you start using it, it's, it's hard to not look back at that all the time, or it's hard not to try to find ways in your life to squeak off a couple of you know, fractions of a point there or, you know, and, and get those numbers lower. So it really, once you get involved in it, it's, um, you know, it's a bit of a game I play with myself, and it's, it's a good challenge, good way to save money too. So what have I learned? People are always asking me, um, what, what have I learned from all of this? And uh, these are some of the big ones. It's hard work. Um, managing all your resources in life is extremely hard work, it's crazy work like I, I'm gardening, gardening at 3 in the morning doing random things at all hours of the day, and, uh, and that's just no way, that's no way to live a life you know? I, I, um, I, I'd, I think it's something that you know, we, we could, uh, you know, hopefully we'll find ways of redeveloping our infrastructure to support some things like this uh, Professor Yule um, on, last week during the Clean Energy Expo wrote a piece on the front page about gardening in our communities and you know using some space in your backyard to grow some vegetables and having students maybe um set up those gardens for you and you know i i could see something like that of maybe spawning some kind of industry where people come in and set up your garden plots for you so you don't have to manage them all the time Um, and you maybe you donate a portion of that produce to something locally Uh, you know i think the the end result there is that it's it's more than we can manage in our own lives to be managing our own power every day to be managing our own food um, to making sure we're happy and healthy that's all part of sustainability too so there's there's certainly some things culturally that we need to change to make that happen uh, community is hugely important in this pro- project and i i don't really think i understood what community really meant until i started working at the center and had people just come out and help me just out of the goodness of their hearts and people uh with with good intentions that uh you know picked me up when i was really feeling down it was a couple times in the last four years honestly where i literally was ready to leave penn state and it was very difficult getting permission to do all this work. Um, and, um, you know, the rewards weren't quite there, you know, I think, early on. Um, even though I knew that it would be worth it in the end. Um, you know, I, I owe those people a great deal of gratitude for, for helping me and making sure that I could stay here and accomplish this. Uh, stereotypes. Stereotypes still abound today. I get termed as a hippie all the time, even though I would never think of myself that way before I had lived out there. It's, you see a guy standing next to a tiny a hut in the middle of a field, you know, with all these crazy solar panels and things around, it's you know it's kind of hard to, you know, people are going to have their assumptions, I think, right off the bat. But they're still there, even though sustainability, I think, is something that is, it's, you know, it's not just an environmental issue. It's more widespread. Um, Andres Edwards wrote a new book called The Sustainability Revolution, and um, he equates it to the Industrial Revolution. And I would agree that we're living in more of a time period that is a paradigm shift, that is happening within... Um, many aspects of our life, architecture, engineering, uh, consumer products, you, know, you name it. Medicine, education, it's, it's sort of seeped its way into everything. Um, so it's not just this kind of you know environmental activist kinds of thing. And uh, another interesting thing I've learned is sometimes it's good to be on the fringe. Uh, the center's had a long history, um, and it's you know, run on a shoestring budget for a long time, and that made it very difficult. But at the same time, I was on Penn State campus, or I am, but just far enough removed that uh, we were able to do things a little differently than they usually happen in traditional education, and really get students engaged and working hands-on with systems that they might not get a chance to work with, like working with renewable energy, building it, developing it themselves, going out, out of their way to find companies to support those ideas. Myths. I think there's whole lots of myths um, that I've sort of uncovered. And one, I guess, is that East versus West myth. Uh, a lot of people think everybody on the west coast is progressive and on the east coast here we're not really you know we're not doing it you know what's going on there the truth of the matter is most of the solar industries are based on the east coast and everybody on the west coast is buying them from the east coast as, um, as you know as, as well as germany which is buying most of the solar panels um, in production right now uh, solar panels for the most part are back ordered till the summer of 2007 at this point and all those panels the majority of them are going overseas to european countries Um, Another myth, I think, is that a lot of people think to get energy, you have to drop $20,000 overnight and you have to have this spectacular, you know, house like this, you know, where this entire southern face is covered with embedded thin film panels there. And it looks beautiful, but that's outrageously expensive. And some of us can afford to do that, but those of us that can't, that doesn't mean that we can't participate either. You can build, and this is probably something I've really learned along the way, you can build a small system for a, a fraction of the cost of what something like that would cost you, um, and you can get a couple solar panels and, the, and the, the simple components that you need to set up a system, and then you know, think of it as a long-term investment, something that you're going to continue to build on, not something you do tomorrow and then you don't think about it anymore because now you have your energy system up. You can put it together piecemeal, and you know, my theory is that if you keep adding... Co- Panels to your power system, eventually you're going to start turning that meter the other way. Right now, how it works is if you can generate, you know, with a system like this, more power than your house needs in a day, then that energy gets sent back to the grid and you collect the energy credits, which, you know, goes towards your electrical bill. Well, if you can keep building on your system and not just say, well, I'm going to put up a two kilowatt system and that's it, if you just keep adding on year after year, that payback is going to be faster and faster and faster, and the energy company has to take it. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's another yurt. I, I can't remember why I put that in there. I just really love yurts. and I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving in Octu- in August, and I'm, I'm finding it hard to, to you know, think of the idea of moving back into something really conventional. I've really grown to love round spaces. For one reason or another, I think when I first moved in there, um, this is another little montage. You can run while I'm talking. Um, when I first moved in, I brought everything into my house. And I had no room for myself in the yurt. Like, my whole life was just in a mound. So I slowly just started, you know, moving things out because it's just, it was very hard to arrange in a space like that. Um, and, I, you know, in the end, I just wound up with this nice, simple, clean space that's very comfortable um, to be in. And these are just some of my favorite shots and moments over the years. The beautiful sunsets out there and rainbows and people endlessly coming by to visit. Um, it's... It's a, it's a very unique experience. I'm really I'm really proud to have had this opportunity, uh, and that's that's the end of my show. Um, and I just like to open up open this up to conversation now and get your ideas on uh, sustainability. I know lots of last week we were talking we, we were listening to to Bruce talk about hydrogen, and all I kept thinking was that's really great, but that's millions and millions of dollars. What do I do other than applaud you for your great work here at Penn State and you, the, what you're doing with hydrogen? That doesn't really do much for my lifestyle, so what can we do? What kinds of questions do you have? Where do we start, or did I cover all the bases? That'd be great. (laughs) I
3: just have a question about getting some basic information. Um, When I attended the Ag Progress Days last year, the State Secretary of Energy was there, and and she was talking about a lot of resources. And when I looked at their page, a lot of it, it pertains to larger farming operations or to businesses, but for me as an individual residential homeowner renovating a hundred-year-old house and implementing those small incremental things i'm finding it difficult to find sort of the sustainable energy 101 type of information Mm -hmm. that i Mm -hmm. need to get started and if you have any suggestions um whether it's websites or you know something that you can go online and I, you're just hearing some of the key words, that would be a good start, but if you have some suggestions. Sure. Um,
1: I could give you that list you know, afterwards, or I could kind of... I mean, there's lots of resources, and I guess it's dependent on you know, what aspect of that you're talking about. Is, is Specifically agriculture, there's lots of great links to that. If you're looking for you know, funding for energy systems or retrofits for your home, there's, there's links to that information as well. What about
4: water source and moving water? That must be very important in what you're doing.
1: Yeah, um, and rainwater is is the primary method of 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 uh, of getting myself water right now. I also I do have like I'm like siphoning off the Penn State grid. I have a, a water line that runs up to my kitchen, so I you know I supplement with that for drinking water at the moment um, as as we're still getting some of these rainwater catchment systems configured. But um, there's an, uh, there isn't a problem drinking rainwater as long as you purify it and have the proper equipment for that so we're we 're sort of segueing into that right now and really disconnecting the homestead completely from from that grid connection to the water um, i i've some of the rainstorms out here with uh, with the surface area that we have in a ruse we can catch like five hundred gallons in one of our storage tanks in a rainstorm, so we get a significant arou- amount of rain um certainly you know we have enough. Um, area on our roofs to, to, to make use of that. We gather a lot of water and most of it just winds up down into, into uh, you know, the stormwater system. So um, if you can catch that, it's great to use for vegetables. I don't have any data, but I, could, I definitely notice that the vegetables seem to, uh, seem to like rainwater a little bit more than, uh, than water out of your tap, uh, which I generally like. I like to let that sit for at least 24 hours, too, before I use water out of the tap. But, uh, you yeah.
5: Dave, can you address the issue of net metering in Pennsylvania and the practical issues of that uh, for
1: a homeowner? You can. Uh, in Pennsylvania, it's, it's pretty easy to set up a grid tie system, um, and that's happening all across the state. You, the only issue is that you're not allowed to t- tap into the grid yourself. You'd have to hire an electrician to do that installation of the inverter that you need to run that power back to the system. But other than that, it's, um, it's accepted in PA now um, in Almost all counties. I know Center County does it for sure now. Uh, Bucks County, my hometown, is doing it. But it's getting more widespread across the state. I don't think it's available in every county yet, though.
5: I was uh, just curious about what kind of car you were driving around when you had to resort to an automobile. Mm.
1: I drive a Cavalier. <laughs> I use, it's like my utility vehicle out there. I so do everything not a biodiesel.
5: <laughs> <laughs> How much do you think it would have uh, decreased your acreage had you used like a biodiesel
1: kind of a car? Mm. That's a good question. I'm... I think if I could manufacture my own fuels, um, I, it would be a significant decrease. I mean, the way, that I, the way that I do this, and I should point out that when you ecological footprint, you can footprint a nation, you can footprint a, um, a production process, um, a product, or and you can pro, um, footprint an individual's life. So you know, a product's certainly going to have this entire life cycle analysis that's separate, but my footprinting work is just sort of the surface of my interaction with those. So if I generated my own biodiesel or, say, went down here to, like, Uncle Chen's or Golden Walk and asked them for their fuel and then turned that into fuel, then, you know, that would be, you know, a a zero on gas on my ecological footprinting. I was just curious
5: because, you know, road trips are a huge part of what make me happy, too. Yeah. (laughs)
6: Yeah,
5: I'm trying to figure (laughs) that one out.
1: I'm moving to Corvallis in August, and I know we're going to go across country, and that's going to be expensive and... uh, and, and a huge leap in footprints from what I'm used to.
6: Hi, um, we set about to build a, the most highly energy efficient house that we could here in the borough. It was 24 by 36, super insulated, the best uh, appliances we could get, and I had to get the plans past center region codes enforcement.
1: Mm-hmm. Now
6: I'm listening to you, you're on Penn State property, your gray water handling your waste disposal.
1: Actually, I am College Township.
6: Okay. Have you ever had to deal with codes in setting up and yeah. maintaining and using these systems? <laughs> on the
1: oh yes. Right. Well, you know, again, that's you know, it's, it's it's great because on the fringe, you know, there's all these little loopholes that I've kind of uncovered like building my house, I was able to do that. Um, but, yes, codes are an issue. To get the wind generator out there, and it's only at 30 feet, that was like eight months of paperwork and waiting for somebody to just stamp the permit and say you can put a wind generator up, you know. Um, actually, the, the kilowatt system, the 2-kilowatt or 1.75 grid tie we're doing uh, right now, um, they just told me yesterday we need a permit for that, and I started this project in January, you know. But they, so there's, yeah, I mean, there's all those kinds of you know, little, like, I guess, legalities and things that kind of come up along the way um, that take a lot of time, but, I, you know, I guess playing the game with College Township and Penn State, you know, I, it works It works out in, in time if you're persistent and you stick to them. There's no reason why you can't have the kind of system you want. As far as gray water, um, yeah, you can't distribute gray or any kind of black water onto the landscape. Uh, those are some, you know, gray water, I don't understand really why you can't distribute that in the state. That's a really old law that's been in place in the state for a long time um, but there are some um, people in the area that have uh, living machine or natural wastewater treatment systems where they take that gray water and just run it in underneath another greenhouse a lined plastic um, base under the greenhouse and then they plant that greenhouse and the plants just absorb the water and evaporate it off and so that's one way of getting around distributing onto the landscape just distribute it somewhere that's contained and then you know let the plants do the rest so, uh, yeah, it's create, you know, creativity, I think, comes in, and uh, certainly you know, massaging the system a little bit uh, is, is important. Mm-hmm.
6: Well, for any system like this, it has to be widely dispersed, I think, to really make a big impact uh, in the country. And that's why when we set out, to, we set out to use only standard materials, standard practices, things mm-hmm. that we could get past codes. And it's hard enough even using that. Yeah. as your criteria. Mm-hmm. And if if this technology won't transfer to the average community, the average town, the average lot, uh, I guess m- maybe you should be working on what systems will pass codes, you know, mm-hmm. without the massaging. Because just to dig a, a three-foot hole for the porch was an unbelievable thing, you know, for the post to go yeah. down in, to have it inspected twice. And, you know, I mean... It's it's everything is very, very difficult to get through when you're trying to work within a standard environment in the borough.
1: I agree. Yeah. I mean I'm not allowed to dig a hole out at the center without letting somebody know I'm gonna dig a hole. I mean, even if it's a foot deep, they need to know where that hole is and what it's for and I agree, you know, and but certainly we can't you know, we can't turn our backs and say, well that's just gonna take too long, you know. I mean it's up to us as individuals to continue pressing these issues and and raising those issues in our community and hopefully changing some of those ideas. I, someone told me that, that that whole notion of gray water came from like, some really old law where somebody said that your washing machine has effluent in it, you know, so you can't just take your washing machine water or your, and run it out into your landscape because there's some kinds of toxic chemicals in there. But I don't know anybody that has those kinds of materials in their washing machine. So, I mean, things like that, I think there's, we need to update some of these ideas, or there needs to be some more dialogue in our community about some of some of these concepts, especially since so many people are interested and more so are getting turned on every day.
4: Hi Dave. Um, My question was mainly that last week you were a little bit skeptical uh, about, or just a little bit annoyed that we weren't really touching on how we could make an impact personally. But, like, beyond martyrs like you, gardening at 3 a.m., and beyond clever, aware people like us, you know, how do you really feel like you're going to... I mean, your adult education, how do you feel like you're going to... or a broader section of the populace is going to actually be able to have any awareness about this at all? I mean, I think that's the biggest topic is because all these little things are out there that can really help... But if you don't know, then it, it it's irrelevant. How, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is, how do you think people are going to start learning about this? How do you? Okay. F- and also, I'm also a student, so I feel like I want to contribute some of my sweat a little bit to uh, making a difference. So, how do you feel?
1: Well, that's a really good question. Um, you know. I think, you know, at first it starts with education more than anything. And and my interest in adult education is exactly that. How do I engage adults in sustainability education and do it effectively? And it's a matter of understanding that there's different kinds of learners and that you have to approach people on their levels and their their comfort levels. But I think most people want to learn. You know, that's what we do. We spend our lives learning. And people are certainly interested in new ideas and ways that they can save some money, do something good for their community do something, uh, good for themselves and for the environment. Um, you know, getting it out there more widespread. I think it's happening right now. I think it, it's, you know, more than just the people that are here. Um, a lot of people are inquiring about these ideas. The information isn't widely available yet, but I think that's also building to meet the demand. You know, people like myself and others in my department that are interested in sustainability education and finding ways of refining that process, asking the right questions and having that right information available. And, um, you know, I, I think that transition happens by you know doing just that, empowering individuals like ourselves to take control of some of our own resources. I think what Bruce is doing, what he talked about last week, is absolutely incredible. But I mean we have roles in that too. We can manage our own resources at our home, make it profitable, do something for our community, and you know, I think you know continue making this country great and innovative means all of us participating in redeveloping the idea of where we're heading. So um, I, you know, I certainly think it's something we all need to be involved in.
5: Sometime some years ago, I tried to get the university interested in more ecologically friendly dormitories, since that would be a tremendous educational vehicle for disseminating the information. Mm-hmm. Now granted they wouldn't be living in yurts, mm. But they might reduce their footprint by 30% or even 50%. Sure. And that, I think, could be very effective in disseminating information to a much larger area. Do you have any information about the university's interest or lack of interest in this sort of thing?
1: That's really interesting because last night we did have a uh, talk uh, and part of our speaker series was last night. And Howard Greenberg and his uh, and the geography course were there. And that's actually their initiative. They were there. They did an assessment of Center County's energy footprint. But a lot of it really boiled down to Penn State, you know, because Penn State's using the majority of the energy in this county. And, you know, and then that translated to questions of what can we do with the student population to make them more conscious. And lots of students were there pointing out, I never turn my lights off when I walk out of my dorm you know, and you know, or I do it, or my roommate doesn't. You know, and um, and some of them don't know how to regulate the heat vents in their place. They just open up the windows and blow it all right out the window. You know, so yeah, there's certainly a number of uh, of issues there, and I, there's tons of ways for for students to kind of you know take steps to decrease their footprint. And hopefully, this group, um, which asked a lot of good pointed questions and got a lot of great feedback from folks last night, on ways to engage students, maybe creating a green pack so when freshmen come in, they get some kind of package that gives them maybe a light for their bike or uh, like a mug. Instead of buying coffee all over campus, they have a mug. I know at University of Toronto, they don't even have cups on the campus. Every student is given a mug when they enter the university and they take it with them through all four years. Something like that would be interesting. If that can fly at Penn State, I don't know if that's maybe a little too progressive, but certainly we could do... <laughs> You know, no offense, you know, I mean, I just think, you know, small steps, you know, I, you know, more so, you know, and I know there's advocates here for this idea of having an ecological component to the curriculum, that's some, something standard, that every student experiences, you know, that there's nothing like that here, but yet we have an incredible university with, um, you know, incredible research going on in sustainability in all facets of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there was ever ever a time that they're going to be receptive, I think it's now, too. I mean, certainly the Office of Physical Plant at this university are, are, I think, champions for reducing energy input at this university, and they're trying desperately, I would say, in ways to do that. But they're also faced with, you know, giant new buildings that keep going up every year that push that expenditure and and use of resources way up, Um, you know, just in the last year, those seven or eight new buildings.
7: Um, My question was about... Uh, these different systems that you have installed and if uh, other people want to install these kinds of systems I guess every uh, solar or the water filtration all these systems need to be tweaked to uh, meet the specific requirement for each person or household so uh, this kind of uh, takes its own learning curve so how do you think this kind of uh, education can be system you know put in a systematic format where each person can take certain type and systematically tweak it to their own requirements because that learning curve is something i find that keeps people away from it like i don't know how to do it or you know i don't know how to tweak it so that keeps me away from going into something like that and I think that will be one of the challenges in educating. So how do you think we address that?
1: Um, that's a really good question. And I think a lot of these systems, for starters, are getting much more user-friendly. Um, the, a lot of guys in the solar industry right now, they are really focusing and, just, you know, racking their brains to develop systems that are super homeowner-friendly with literally like setting up your laptop computer. You know, you get that color-coded card. Plug this into the orange port. It's an orange-colored cable that's the way they're designing these, these power systems now. And they're trying to make, you know, you put your panels up, but then everything else that you need for the system is contained in literally a box. You know, so that's what the industry is doing. As far as individuals, ourselves, I, I agree. I think, you know, when you get into some of these areas that are foreign to a lot of us, it's uh, intimidating. Um, and, you know, my background, my undergrad was in creative writing. I knew nothing about installing <laughs> solar panel systems except how to spin the rhetoric on it, you know. But... Um, Really, what it comes down to is going on the internet. It's incredible. I mean, companies like Home Power—they produce an incredible magazine, but they also archive everything on their web pages. Home Power has every feasible and um, you know layout and schematic for a system known to man. I mean, they have it, they have it all there. And you can just pull up schematics and piece it together. And you're like, I need this component, this one, this one. So, I mean, again, you need to get you need to get past those issues of you know, I'm, of taking that initiative to get out there and do it yourself. And and that, I think, is, a, you know, inspiring people. Is, hopefully something like this will do that. It inspires people to say, well, if that guy was a creative writer and he can grow his own food and install his own power and build a house, And you know, I could probably put a couple of solar panels up, you know, and, and it's, it's doable. And I would also point out real quick that um, another great way to get solar panels is to call these companies, call BP call Keo, Sarah, Sanyo, Sharp, call them up and say, do you have old test panels that you're not using anymore? Students get them all the time. They come out to me all the time. They just got new solar panels. They just called the company up. They test panels all the time. like Monthly, they're developing new panels, new technology, testing them, and then they're done. They can't ship them because they're used. You can call these companies up and get them and just start playing around with them. Get a couple. See what you can do. Find some guys like Invinity and these local green design companies that are doing... Work like this that will point you in the direction of professionals that can help you, you know, troubleshoot and, and tweak the systems like you're talking about.
5: Some years ago on campus, we moved into a new building, and of course, it was a low bid construction, carefully monitored by the state. The heating system was a series of a series pipe with fins that went through every office and every room, mm. and the only way to control the heat was to raise or lower a metal flap over the top of the fins. <laughs> low bid one. But, of course, when we wanted to cool off while the steam was still being pumped, the only way to do it was to open the window. So you have a conflict here between low bid and reasonable efficiency. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Certainly, I think there's a lot of buildings on campus like that too, and um, you know the Penn State Indicators report, and uh, you know the Mueller building. I mean, people have gone in depth on Sackett and uh, Hammond as well, and talked about how you know inefficient some of these structures are, and unfortunately they're there, and um, some of them are slated to come down in the next couple of years. But hopefully that's what we'll do, and we'll build, continue to build some lead buildings like they're working on now. Um, like the new um, Sala building uh, back there and the forestry building, buildings like that, which I think are a little more conscious. I think they still have a way to go with some of those ideas too, but you know, that's the progression that this university is taking, and, and hopefully, you know, hopefully it will continue to move in that direction.
6: Uh, when you're calculating your personal footprint and you're using these solar panels, I, I couldn't read some of your, your data, do you kind of amortize the cost and the materials and all the petroleum-based technology that had to go into the manufacture of those panels as a part of your personal footprint over a number of years, or does that come
1: into it? Um, well, that would be more of a life cycle analysis of the product itself. Um, my footprinting is just my interaction with those systems and um, the factors that they've de- were devised Like, there's a number, you know, I calculate my kilowatt, I read my kilowatt meter off the solar system, and then I multiply my kilowatts by this footprint factor that were devised by um, Wackernagel, which breaks down, you know, that energy usage and its sort of component of your overall acreage. So it's just sort of a surface-level analysis of, um, you know, the, the, the sort of requirements... Um, Resource requirements. There's a minimal, I think, um, on there. Like uh, renewable energy does have a footprint factor, so it's not free energy. It is some of it is equated in that calculation, but not. You know, certainly they're not taking into account the amount of energy going into the whole production, which is which is a lot right now. But solar panels are also in their third. Um, they're sort of in their their third level now, third stage of development, and a lot of those first and second generations are being recycled into new panels, so they're not necessarily having to scavenge and. Dig up more, I know people have talked that there 's like some kind of silicone shortage, but that 's not not the case at all there 's plenty of it out there, um, but at least they are being conscious now of reusing the panels that they have out there and not just you know continuing on that trend. Companies that are developing solar panels are generally a little more eco conscious too, so they have got some good habits.
2: Um, I just wanted to thank David for being willing to Uh, be part of this grand experiment, and uh, I work with the Center for Sustainability also. And um, I think it takes a lot of dedication to try and lower your footprint to this degree, but there are a lot of lessons learned that um, address your question of, well, if I'm not willing to go live on a yurt and live completely off the grid. And, and I encourage you to talk to him uh, further and visit him because very simple, easy things like walking and biking instead of getting in the car or growing your own tomatoes in the summer or, um, you know, uh, installing a solar water heater, which is a cost effective choice in Pennsylvania, uh, which the technology is well well developed and readily available and a wonderful uh, small addition incremental addition which many people can afford it's just a few thousand dollars exactly what david was talking about um, he's learned over many many years all of these details and it's almost impossible to talk about them in an hour but um, please encourage uh, all of you to come visit us at the center and um... know that we are using all these lessons learned to develop technologies for the residential scale market um, available to the mainstream for the commercial uh, consumption uh, and consumer consumption. Um, The next Solar D residence will be a home with um, technologies incorporated that should be affordable um, for everyone and that can be um, purchased by um, Pennsylvania consumers. Um, And please, please, thank you uh, for doing this. Um, He is the only one to our knowledge, in the United States who has been willing um, to give up the comforts of a dorm room um, to go do this. So we appreciate all of his hard work. Thank you.
0: Well, I think she did a good job wrapping it up for me. So I'm just going to give you a nice, efficient research unplugged mug to enjoy. And Dave has graciously invited us to visit the center. Right now, if anyone's interested, if I could just see a show of hands, if anyone is planning to do that, he has some maps. um, And if you can't get there today, you're always welcome to stop by. I'm
1: always wandering around there all weekends long. So if you want a map, there's some sitting up over here, and you're welcome to stop by and visit and drop in whenever.
0: So thanks again, Dave. And we have one more event this season next Wednesday. Nancy Locke will be here. little change of topic, we'll be talking about art. So I hope you can join us. Thanks a lot.
1: Thanks, everyone.